It is a joy and an honor to be with all of you this morning. Um, as I thought through this moment, I wasn't really sure what my emotions were going to do to me. Um, Cassie can probably count on two hands, maybe the number of times I've cried. But one of those moments was our wedding day, and I bawled like a baby for a very long time. And I wasn't sure what my emotions were going to do to me right now, um, because my heart is so full of gratitude. Um, because as I look around, I see the faces of those who have supported who have been a part, who have done long meetings and shown up early to make Midtown Church possible. And so for that, Cassie and I just say thank you. Thank you for being present. Thank you for helping us build just a little, little community of Jesus followers in the heart of the city. Thank you for helping us reveal the kingdom together. And so uh, on the very first official Sunday of Midtown Church, we get to launch into a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there are few places better to begin with the ministry of Jesus than with his grandest sermon. Throughout church history, throughout really Christianity, it has been the thing we look to when we need guidance. And if there's anything I know about this moment, it's that we need guidance. So for the next six months, we will be journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, reflecting on what Jesus, what Jesus might have to say to us. And in all reality, this Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus has to say about what life in the kingdom looks like. And what that kingdom is and what his announcement is, is the subject of today's sermon. And it'll be an exploration of what Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom. As a culture <clears throat> and as a church, we are in a moment in which deconstruction has become the buzzword and the unacknowledged elephant in many churches. If you've heard the term deconstruction, you might be familiar with ideas and narratives of people walking away from the faith. It's no secret that the church in the West is shrinking and in many ways, I would argue it's as much a result of internal problems as it is external pressures. Greed, celebrityism, sexual abuse, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and just simple corruption have tainted the experience of many with the church. And in general, we have not done a great job of holding space for those with doubts and with those with questions. And the subculture that we've created, many of us have grown up in or around, has been rife with inconsistent leaders, racial injustice, and simply unchristian priorities. And many in this very room have experienced what you might describe as deconstruction. Or maybe you're in the midst of it. Or maybe you're close to someone who has. And that space can feel very alienating and uncertain. But I applaud those of you who are still searching. Those who are still pursuing Christ in the midst of doubt. Those who are still seeking community amongst his people even as you wrestle with him. It's a beautiful thing that Christ welcomes us to touch his scars even in the midst of our doubt. And what we call deconstruction can be a beginning to faith as much as it can be an end. 
the popular notion of deconstruction. So let me tell you, I went down a dark, dark rabbit hole of research. And if you Google deconstruction, you'll probably get into some mind-melting writings of different philosophers. And so the academic definition of deconstruction and the popular notion of it are different. So reader beware. Um, the deconstruction we're talking about and how I will define it is the taking apart of an idea, a practice, a tradition, belief, or system into smaller components in order to examine their foundation, truthfulness, usefulness, and impact. Now, I am not an HGTV fanatic, but I do dabble. And uh, Cassie has made me watch quite a few, a lot of Fixer Upper. And I think it's helpful to compare deconstruction to an HGTV show. Our charming Southern-born hosts, they're always from the South, they purchase an old home with what they describe as what? Good bones. And they examine the entire building. They start with the foundation, they look at rooms, and they begin to examine what it's worth, seeing if they can salvage most of it and figuring out what they need to get rid of. Whole rooms may be removed, the roof may need to be replaced, new flooring may need to be laid, but it is all in pursuit of building something more beautiful than what was received. Similarly, Deconstruction is the examination of the faith we've received in pursuit of something more beautiful and ultimately more faithful. And the reality is there is both a helpful version and an unhelpful version of deconstruction. Unhelpful deconstruction, which is all over our social media feeds, begins in the place, the healthy and rightful place, of examining Christian subculture and rightfully calling attention to its inconsistencies. So that's the good place. It calls attention to inconsistencies. However, the tool for unhelpful deconstruction is not the teachings of Jesus, but the norms of what we find around us. Pundits, influencers, and 280 characters become the microscope by which Christian conduct is evaluated. And in that process, contempt always takes root. And while deconstruction is not synonymous with destruction, many who have used the norms of our culture to critique the church of Christ find themselves with a shipwrecked faith. But that doesn't have to be your experience. It's true many have walked away from their faith, but others, myself included, have found an expression of faith more wonderful and more robust than anything that we had prior. Healthy deconstruction uses the teachings of Jesus to critique and to call the church back to allegiance and faithfulness. It's what we find in the Hebrew prophets, calling the Israelites to abandon their idolatry, their exploitation of the poor and the impoverished around us, and they return to the worship of the God of Israel. If your heart still aches for the people of God to live in the way of Jesus, to reveal his love, his character, and his justice to the world, you are likely in the midst of healthy deconstruction. In fact, I would argue that the text that we are reading today is a moment in which Christ encourages his disciples to deconstruct the false notions of faith to turn to something new. But instead of using the term deconstruction, 
I want to explore this passage using the term found on the lips of Jesus, repent. For the first words that began the ministry of our Savior are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the moment these words are first uttered is a moment rife with political, economic, and religious tensions. See, Jesus was amongst an occupied people. His fellow countrymen and countrywomen were an occupied people under the rule of the Roman Empire. And taxation was so high that their ancestral lands were often being pulled away from them because they just could not keep up with the taxes. Some scholars think it was anywhere from 60 to 90% depending on the tax collector. So whenever you read about the tax collectors getting bad raps, it's because they knew of family members, neighbors, and friends who had had their entire land and livelihood stolen from them by a fellow Israelite. They were an economically oppressed people. And if that wasn't enough, squadrons of Roman soldiers would parade through the Galilean countryside as a constant reminder of who was in charge. And so when this itinerant rabbi named Jesus steps into this virtual powder keg of religious, political, and cultural, and economic turmoil, it is explosive. And as I think and I read and I reflect on that moment, it begins to sound familiar, political, economic, cultural turmoil. For all these reasons... Jesus' announcement that the government of God, the kingdom of heaven, is within grasp is an electric message that explodes within the imagination of the Jewish people. And his invitation is to repent, for his kingdom is at hand. Now, if you grew up in church, um, repentance might be one of those trigger words for you where you flinch a little bit and you're like, what's coming next? Um, he's saying repent a lot. Repentance has come to mean something like, spirit, like be more spiritual, get your act together, or participate in a moral revival. And while repentance may include those things, that is an incomplete depiction of what Jesus has to say in this particular moment. For the word Jesus uses and how Matthew translates it, the Greek word is metanoia, which is a directive, you rethink everything. It comes loaded with this word picture of turning from the path you are on and going in a different direction. And as Jesus used it, repent is to change your mind, to rethink, but a rethinking that has such a profound impact on your life that it changes who you are. Prepare yourself for the nerdy illustrations, but there's this great scene in Star Wars, Attack of the Clones. There's not very many great scenes in that movie, but this is one of the good ones. Where Elon slees Bagenel, and I had to look that up. I am not that big of a nerd. I'm a nerd, but I'm not that big of a nerd that I know a side character's name. Where Elon slees Bagenel comes to Obi-Wan Kenobi and offers him a death stick. I can only assume a death stick is an illegal substance in a galaxy far, far away. And the sly Obi-Wan Kenobi gives him the old Jedi mind trick, and he tells him, you want to go home and rethink your life. 
And of course, Mr. Sleesbagano goes home and rethinks his life. And I like to think he gets a legal job and he settles down with a nice Mrs. Sleesbagano. But he goes home and he rethinks his life. And as goofy as an illustration as this is, it is what Jesus beckons us to do minus the Jedi mind trick. See, repentance is the king of the cosmos inviting us to reorient our priorities, inviting us to reflect on the things that we have held as important, the things that we have held so dearly, and he is inviting us to rethink all of that in light of this new information, specifically that his kingdom is at hand. Dallas Willard once wrote, repentance, as Jesus used it, did not mean that you get down and beat your head on the floor. And when you're done, you better do it a few more times to make sure you fully repented. Metanoia, repentance, means that you think about your thinking. And in that context, it requires us to ask ourselves, who is currently king or queen in our lives? And if we're honest, if we're honest, we will answer me. This would mean that repentance is the practice of taking stock of our allegiances, our loyalties, and our priorities. Let's look at the example Matthew gives us of the first disciples in this passage turning away from their occupation in order to follow him. In verse 18, Matthew writes, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. In both examples, these new disciples turn away, metanoia, from the tools of their trade, their workplace, and even their family. Jesus' call to repent is disruptive. It deconstructs our previous value systems in order that our allegiance may be to Christ and to his kingdom. And often, when we reflect long enough, we find that in our hearts we have strayed from Christ the King and that we've elevated our own philosophies, politics, emotions or ideologies to the place of primary importance. And repentance is the practice of rethinking that. This is not a one-time occurrence, but the lifelong practice of submitting our agenda and realigning our lives and our allegiance to our king. And oftentimes this feels like a deconstruction of sorts. But on the other side of that repentance, is faithfulness to Jesus. But as we reflect on this call, it is a weighty one. If you're going, wow, that sounds intense. Yeah, it's, it's weighty. And it is only worth it if the thing that you are turning to is better than what you are turning from. Jesus's call is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you and I were one of those fishermen struggling with economic oppression of the Roman Empire, paying 60, 70, 80, or 90% in taxes, what would it take for you to leave your only means of income and become a homeless disciple? 
What would motivate you now to leave your job behind and hit the road with an itinerant preacher? If I was like, hey, we're, we're going around the country to leave everything you know, it would take a pretty status quo upsetting event. It would take something that upends all that we know and something that completely disrupts culture and life and offers us an alternative. And the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as it is used in Luke and Mark is that disrupting announcement. It is the idea that God in his transcendent royalty is beginning to exercise his rule here and now. Jesus defined it as your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If heaven is the territory or space that is totally submitted to God, then the kingdom of God is the inbreaking of that reality. It's the idea that God is at work in our world. In approximately 30 pages of Matthew, so if you were to get out your Bible and count them up, there's about 30 pages, depending on font and type size and all that. But the kingdom of God is mentioned 52 times throughout that gospel, which is a little bit over 1.5 mentions per page. And so when we think of Jesus and his gospel, we should think of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 23. And he went on, Jesus went on, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is Jesus' primary message. It's this idea that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and everything that Jesus says and does flows from that. And that's good news. Have you seen the Disney version of Robin Hood from like 1973 with the animals? Hopefully you have. If not, add that to your list because it is a great one. In that movie, and it really in the, the Robin Hood story or legend in general, there are two kings, the cowardly Prince John, who is the younger brother, and the noble and kind King Richard. Both lions, but one has a mane, one doesn't. But it is this story of two kings, this idea that the people of England are suffering under the policies, cruelty, and ineptitude of Prince John, and they long for the return of the good King Richard. And thus Robin Hood's actions are done under the ineptitude and the corruption of Prince John, but he longs for the return of the good King Richard. Likewise, our earth, our world has been under the evil reign of a tyrant who, who uses the policies of sin, violence, and suffering to, if, to enslave us, to bring us to fear, and the good news of the kingdom is that the good King Jesus is taking his world back. And I think it's safe to say that we all long for a change in management. I think it's safe to say whether you acknowledge the existence of a divine being or not, it's that we all ache for things to be set right. We all ache for justice to be done in our world. We all ache for all wrong to be set right. And the good news is that that is exactly what Jesus promises. And those of us who pledge our allegiance to him, those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, now strive to let the whole world know that they no longer have to bend a knee to the tyrants of our age. 
And Matthew even offers us an example of what the kingdom of heaven looks like in action. So Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria. This is verse 24. And they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from the Jordan. The kingdom of God is free of human corruption, exploitation, sickness, and affliction. The kingdom of God is one of flourishing joy and of new creation. At the end of the Apostle John's wildly misinterpreted book called Revelation, if you've read Left Behind, that's not it. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. After a year like 2020, what a promise. That the good news of the kingdom doesn't stop at our own personal transformation. That it is the complete renewal of all creation. We are provided the hope for a kingdom that does everything that we are unable to do. Worship team, if you would join me on the stage. The kingdom of heaven as Christ presents it is something we can only picture with our most wild imagination. Like if you were to sit at home and just think, what does utopia look like? It's everything loaded in the ideas of Jesus' kingdom. But there is a bit of a thorny tension with this. There's a little bit of a disconnect in which the claims of Jesus hardly seem to be true. I'm talking about a kingdom in which sickness, brokenness, injustice is set right, and yet Afghanistan is reeling. Haiti is devastated. Children are still being exploited. Poverty is still rampant. Everyone is angry. And oh yeah, there's a global pandemic. And in so many ways, it would be easy to say Jesus missed it. It'd be easy to say that was a, that's a great thought. That sounds wonderful, but I, I just don't see it. And I don't think I can ease that tension, but I can offer an idea that might offer a little bit of hope. As you read through the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, a theme emerges, a theme that theologians call the inaugurated eschatology, big fancy word that I, sorry, I nerd out on, but it just means the already, not yet. It is this idea that the kingdom of heaven began in the person of Jesus, but will not be fully established until a later date. That in Jesus, the fullness of the kingdom came, but it isn't here fully. That we live in a bit of an in-between time. That we have tasted Jesus, that we have seen Jesus, that we can come to know him, but the entirety of our world hasn't been made right. A good illustration of this is, imagine we were to go to a restaurant 
new fancy one, like everybody's been looking forward to it. You've heard several people say, you need to go try this restaurant. And we arrive at the restaurant, we put in our drink order and we order an appetizer. We've ordered our food, we're sitting expectantly, we've received the appetizer, we've received our drinks and we've tasted what this restaurant has to offer, but we are not yet fully satisfied. We sit in the time between the appetizer and the full meal. We sit in between where we've received a taste of the kingdom in Jesus, but we wait for the culmination of it on a day to come. And if you are looking for a taste of his kingdom, just look around you. For despite a pandemic, we are gathering as the people of God in song and in hope. Asylum seekers are finding safety and community in our city. Followers of Jesus are actively giving of their resources, their time and their funds to alleviate poverty in our city. People are finding meaningful community in living rooms, in dining rooms, and in around coffee shops in our city. That there are glimpses of God's kingdom embedded in moments of kindness, in moments of generosity, in moments in which we step out in faith. The goodness of God is present in little moments. And we are receiving a foretaste of that kingdom as we step out and we have the eyes to see where God's kingdom is already present. I think if we look close enough, we will begin to see the fingerprint of God at work. And as we begin the process of examining Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I think it's valuable and important that we begin with the place of repentance to embrace the possibility that we may need to rethink everything we know in light of his kingdom. And just the honest truth is we all have moments in, we, in which we realize that we've had an idea about Jesus or we've had a behavior in our life or we've had a, a reaction to a coworker, a family member or a spouse that just simply doesn't line up with the Jesus we see in scripture. And I think this passage and what Jesus is calling us to is to have the courage to begin to untangle, to begin to deconstruct, to begin to repent of the misconceptions we've had in order to follow him more faithfully. I think we all need moments in which Jesus's announcement disrupts our status quo. And as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto of what life in his kingdom looks like, we must begin in repentance. I'll give you four final thoughts and then we're gonna come to the table of the Lord. Four things to keep in mind as we begin practicing repentance. Let us simply begin by admitting we might have loyalties and ideas and thoughts about God that are simply wrong. Is that too much of a stretch to say we might not fully understand the infinite God? Is it too crazy to think that we might have a misunderstanding that came from something we heard when we were young? I don't think it's that crazy to go, there might be things I don't fully understand about God, but I am willing to step into the place of going. I might have some wrong loyalties and ideas. Second thing, start small. 
If you're in the process of deconstructing, it can be really, really messy and it can be really uncomfortable. There's no reason to rewrite the entirety of the theological handbook or there's no need to read 400 pages. Start small. Begin with examining the practices and the things in your life that you go, yeah, I know that's not right. Just begin examining what Christ might be saying to us. Third, commit to exploring. Just commit to saying, I'm gonna explore. It's not uncomfortable. It's not something that you have to be ashamed of. Just admit that we're all exploring. And finally, fourth, as you all join me to your feet, embrace the mystery of contradiction. Embrace the idea that you might hold on to something that, you know, in one way seems right and then you read something else and you're like, I, I don't understand how these two things work together. But life is a tension. Life is managing those tensions and figuring out how do all of these things interact. Embrace the mystery of contradiction. And in doing so, I think we'll find ourselves at the place of repentance. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.